I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 814. We have been looking at this letter to the church at Ephesus and viewing the church through spiritual eyes. I want to return to this passage that we began considering a couple of weeks ago. appreciate so much Pastor Malone and, and Dr. Davis filling in for me while, while I was gone and the, their messages and uh, just the strength and encouragement and challenge of, of, of those messages. Imagine with me this morning that one day you're walking through the Chandler Fashion Mall. And as you're walking through, a, a well-dressed, professional individual comes, comes making their way to you very excitedly. And as he gets close, he's got a big smile on his face, and he, he gets near you and he exclaims, you're just the person I've been looking for. Well, at that point, you're probably wondering, okay, what's going on here? But he continues, he said, I've got this wonderful opportunity for you. And you're thinking, what are the strings that are attached? He says, there, there's no strings. I want to offer my services to you free of charge. I, I really believe I can help you, and, and you will be able to display my ability. And he hands you his business card. And as you glance down at his card, you find out he's a plastic surgeon. And he goes on to explain that he's one of the leading specialists in the valley and he's been looking for somebody that he can use for the before and after pictures of his work. Now at that point, what would you think? Most of us would be offended. We'd probably start looking around and saying, but what about them? Because <laughs> if you've been in the mall, you'll probably find somebody else that you might think would be a better specimen. And most of us would not be honored by that because we would understand we weren't being singled out because he considered us delightful, but rather deformed. And our potential in his eyes is that he would be able to show such a contrast that other people would look at his work and say, he is good. I'm impressed with his workmanship. You know, if somebody wants you to be the before picture for their, their, their self-improvement plan, their beauty product, their surgical procedure, it's because your potential is you're a long way from what they think they can do. And they believe the after pictures will show the dramatic change that will convince others that their product is worth having. Folks, the reason that people are often offended with the idea of God's wrath is they don't think they need the great physician. They don't think the before picture is that bad. And therefore, they don't think they really need to change. Today, I want us to consider the magnificent mercy of God. That God's magnificent mercy that is directed toward us is demonstrated because of where we're coming from. Two weeks ago, we considered the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2 that describe the position of, of every person born into this world. And while they're physically alive, they're spiritually dead without Christ. And the picture is not pretty. They're not just dead, but we're defiant without Christ. We're defiled 
We've trespassed where God has said, no, don't go, and, and we're tainted with corruption. And it gets worse. We're willfully disobedient. We walk after the course of this world, and, and it's, not only are we drifting in the way of the world, we are dominated by the power of the devil. The prince of the power of the air that works in the children of disobedience, and, and there's an energy in the world that is energized by Satan. And before Christ, we're engaged in the world's rebellion. We conduct ourselves after inappropriate desires and thoughts, both flesh and mind. We have thin, sinful thoughts and sinful passions, and the, this deplorable condition culminates with the wretched realization that we are doomed. We are children of wrath. Our very nature is such because we are descendants of Adam, just like everybody else. And one of the clearest proofs that a sinner is a sinner is that he doesn't recognize his sin. The difference between the illustration that I used and our spiritual condition is that with any makeover, they have to have something to start with. In our salvation, we start with nothing. We're dead. There is no life. The, the person who would say, I have a plan for you, at least sees some hope. Without Christ, we're hopeless. And God chooses the hopeless. The dead, defiant, defiled, disobedient who are following the devil's rebellion and conducting ourselves in inappropriate desires, deserving of doom, and God reaches down and saves us. But people don't want responsibility for their sin. We see that in our culture. Our, our culture wants to say, well, the problem is ignorance, so we need education. Or maybe it's illness, so we need medication. Or it's our environment, so we need reformation. Maybe it's just we have a problem with our technique, so we need some modifications. Or when all else fails and there's just the opposition, then we just need more legislation. How often does a horrible tragedy take place in our culture and the politicians say, we need more laws? You mean we didn't have a law against killing people? No, it's not a problem of legislation. It's the heart that is wicked. And that's what these opening verses describe here in Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to again read the, the first 10 verses, though we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 this morning. And I want us to read it as if we had it in Greek, we would see it. And so I've, I've left the words in italics a little bit darker. We're going to read over those because those aren't in the original Greek text. They're provided by the translator so that we will pick up the verb that doesn't actually come until verse 5. But I want us to see the, the, the picture, the plight of all of us without Christ. Follow with me as I begin reading in Ephesians 2, 1. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
that in the ages to come we might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The nature of our death is described in these verses. It's the idea of going where we're not supposed to go. We've trespassed. We're doing what we're not supposed to do. We've sinned. We're following who we're not supposed to follow. We're desiring what we shouldn't desire and gratifying the desires that shouldn't be gratified. We're thinking thoughts that shouldn't be thought. And all of this is a characteristic of disobedience. And you say, okay, but we've already considered that. So why are you reviewing it? Because if we don't see the depths from which we have been saved, we won't see the magnitude of God's mercy. We're not going to worship God properly because worship is exalting and, and it being excited about enjoying His worthship, that He is worthy. And often today, people think, well, we have to figure out what other people want. Well, the tastes of the spiritually dead should not determine the flavor of our spiritual food. The spiritually dead shouldn't decide how spiritual worship is conducted. And so we have to understand, if we don't understand where we're coming from, we're not going to worship properly. Because truthfully, the unsaved cannot properly worship. They can observe worship. But until you come to that saving knowledge of Christ, you can't worship in spirit and in truth. If we don't understand where we've come from, we're not going to strive to walk purely. Because you can't overcome the desires of the flesh by walking in the flesh. And we're not going to wish, we're not going to worship, witness passionately. Because we're going to assume people are basically good and others are worse, and so they'll be okay. No, they're dead and doomed without Christ. And yet too many Christians even consider God's wrath as some sort of a primitive, repulsive concept. That hell is some kind of an insult to fairness in our minds. And, and contrary and contradictory to the love of God. Now, God is patient. He's long-suffering. But understand, when, when people who are whole don't need a doctor. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God is not reluctant to judge people who choose sin over the Savior. Because God is righteous. God's wrath is divine. It's infinite. Luke 12, 5 says, Fear him who has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Those were the words of Jesus. God's wrath is fierce. Isaiah 66, 16 says, For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh. And sometimes it takes seeing the depth of sin to get the right perspective on his mercy. You know, if you try to see how tall something is, sometimes it's being at the very base that helps you. When we were moving out here, my son and I, my son Tim and I, stopped by the gateway arch. In, in St. Louis, Missouri. It's known as the gateway to the West. And since I was moving to the West, I figured I ought to visit. And so we stopped there. And, and at a distance, it's impressive. But when you get close and look up, it is really impressive. It is awe-inspiring. The world's tallest arch 
at 630 feet. And you look up at those heights, and, and if, if it's a sunny day, you, you really can't even look at it because of the sun reflecting off that stainless steel monument. And as my son stood there, and just I could look and see the height of that. Well, when you, un- when you understand the depth of your sinfulness, then you understand the height of God's mercy. Our gaze cannot handle His glory, but our hearts should be inspired by the awe of what He has done because God's great love is displayed in His merciful work, not only in providing you with new life, but by blessing you with a personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to consider from this passage this morning. Now, the first question we ought to ask is, what would prompt God to act so compassionately to us and so freely on our behalf? And what we find is it's His character. The first thing that we see in this passage is the revelation of God's compassionate character in verse 4. But God, that is that, this is the hinge, the turning point in these verses. This this bleak picture of our condition without Christ that is painted in verses 1 through 3, but God, who is rich in mercy. And that's the first thing that we see here, that God is merciful. Up to this point in this paragraph, in this sentence, there has been no subject or, or main verb mentioned. Verse 1 is expanded on by verses 2 and 3, and verse 4 then sets that point of contrast. And now the the subject is stated. God is the subject. The main verb is we're made alive, and we'll consider that in just a moment in verse 5. But the first thing that we see is the mercy of God, that God is merciful. God who is rich in mercy. You know, as as people made in the image of God, living in a fallen world, we we sometimes struggle with the aspects of mercy and justice. You know, we we want justice. We demand justice from others and in other situations, but we we expect mercy. You know, we, we think mercy means we deserve a second chance. No, we don't deserve a second chance. Justice means we get what we deserve. And sinners could rightly only expect God's wrath. As as children of wrath, that's what we could expect. If God destroyed every sinful person, he would be entirely justified and there could be nothing done to avert his judgment. Because God is just. But he's also merciful. In The Merchant of Venice, in Shakespeare's play, Antonio borrows a large portion of funds from the greedy moneylender named Shylock. If you're familiar with the play, it's, a, it's really a study in, in, in human nature. Uh, they're, they're, Shylock is both abused, but he's also the abuser. The, that he is mistreated, but he so hates Antonio for Antonio's generosity, but also some of his prejudices, that he writes the contract in such a way that if Antonio defaults on the loan, the payment will be a pound of Antonio's flesh. Well, when Antonio is not able to pay his debt, Shylock demands that pound of flesh. He wants him dead. And so he comes with his knife that he wants to cut out one pound of flesh from Antonio. And here the the play reveals that Shylock possesses the same sinful heart as those who have been abusive to him. 
And Shylock's daughter, Portia, appears disguised as a young man who's a lawyer. And she asks Shylock, her father actually, to show mercy. There's a, there's a famous speech, a soliloquy. Yes, I had to look that word up. <laughs> a dramatic speech, and she states this. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. That is a powerful statement. Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us would see salvation. We don't need God's justice. And in the end, Shylock's demand for pure justice actually becomes his undoing. He wants the letter of the law, and he ends up getting nothing because of it. We need to be very careful about demanding justice. Oswald Chambers, in reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount in his book, The Utmost for, the, for My Highest, said this, do not be bothered with whether you are being justly dealt with or not. To look for justice is a sign of deflection from devotion to him. Never look for justice in this world, but never cease to give it. We look for justice, we will begin to grouse and indulge in the discontent and self-pity. He said, if our focus is on justice, we're going to see a lot of injustice in this world. And the truth, of us, the truth is none of us have full knowledge to see the full picture as God does. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Or here in Ephesians 2.4 we find that use of mercy. And it's actually the only time the word mercy is used in this letter. It speaks of God's compassion, his pity on sinners who deserve to receive his payment of, of their just debt for sin. And God alone is the only one who's able to dispense complete mercy with perfect justice. His mercy is not miserly. He's, he's not stingy with it. it is, God is rich in his mercy because his mercy exhibits his character. And we see it throughout Scripture. Sometimes we wonder about the Old Testament, but you find it throughout the Old Testament. In Psalms 116, verse 5, it says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. Psalm 117, 2, the shortest psalm, says, For his mercy, merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The psalmist is praising God for his mercy. God is merciful, but the second thing that we see in this is God is love. It speaks of that as well in this passage, that God who is rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. God's love seeks the highest good in the one who is loved. He seeks to reestablish that fellowship that, that we could have with him, that we're created for fellowship with him, and that was broken by sin, by the fall. And he sent his son to reestablish that. 
our sin is rebellion. It's not only against God's law, it's not only against his lordship, it's against his love. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he seeks our good. You know, our love for another person is seeking their good. It's not seeking what can I get from them. That's selfishness. Biblical love is, is giving. That's the heart of God. The third word that's used in this passage is, is speaking of God's graciousness. And God is gracious. By grace you have been saved. And we've got that parenthetical statement in verse 5 that, that will be developed in, in verses 8 and following. But, but we're, we're being reminded of God's mercy and His love and the grace that He gives us. That, that God's character is manifested by His mercy. It's motivated by His love and it's based on His grace. And grace is really a key theme here in Ephesians. In fact, the word is used 12 times in these six chapters. It, it's, it, it saturates this book. The song at Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. We see at the cross God's judgment, his justice, the vindication for sin that is poured out on Christ for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us and the mercy that is freely offered to us. See, grace stands opposed to any kind of work or merit that we could do. And then the fourth statement in this passage is, God is kind. Verse 7, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These, these four words in these few verses that speak of the character of who God is. And, and I'm emphasizing this, I'm kind of parking here because one of Satan's tactics is to make us think that God is unfair or unkind or holding back. And that was the first sin. You know, that God's holding out on you. Well, if I, if I serve the Lord, if I surrender to Him, He's going to make me do something that I don't want. He's going to make me uncomfortable. No, He loves you. He wants your best. That's His love. And we see the result of that in our salvation. So the second thing is the result of God's magnificent salvation is revealed in verses 5 and 6. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage, that, that when God has done this, He did it when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The main verb of this extended sentence, which goes from verse 1 to verse 7 in the, the Greek text, now appears. And there are actually three verbs that are describing what's taking place. He made us alive together. And, and so that's why the, the tra translators put that in verse 1 to help us understand where this is going. He, he made you alive. But it doesn't come until verse 5. And then it expands on that. He, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together in Christ and made us sit together in Christ. And so we're, we're seeing that our salvation, which is mentioned in verse 5, that, that is, or is being expanded upon here, it's an indication that if you've been saved, all of this is part of that salvation. And so consider this statement. It really, it parallels chapter 1, verse 20. That says that he, God, raised him, Christ, from the dead and seated him, Christ, at his, God's, right hand in the heavenly places. And so verse 20 of chapter 1 and now this passage are really parallel. 
Here's what God did for Christ. Here's what God does for us in Christ. And it's amazing. The first thing that we see is that you are rescued. You are made alive together with Christ. And this is where that verb comes from. The, the first thing that a dead person needs is not a makeover. They need life. They need, they need what the, the theological term is regeneration. Giving spiritual life to those that are spiritually dead. It's, it's the impartation, that instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life on that, the one that was spiritually dead. Or as it says in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he saved us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is where we get the term born again. The idea of that. You, you read it in, in John chapter 3, verse 3. That's where it comes from. But the idea there is regeneration. The one who is dead is given life. Born. Rescued from wrath. What, that's what we all deserved. We were deserving of doom, the wrath of God, just like everybody else, and we've been rescued. It's an act of God's grace. Given that new life, but it's done with a purpose. And that purpose is that we would be remade. Raised us up together with Christ. That's the second thing that we see in this passage. So he made us alive with Christ, and then he raises us up together. And, and the idea behind this is we have a new disposition. It's not just, okay, you, now you're alive, now go back and, and try to make it in the world. No, there's, there's a spiritual life. There's a new disposition. As, as we've mentioned, having the baptismal service next week, that step of obedience, that public identification that I belong to Jesus Christ that comes after a person is trusted in Christ. And what we say is when that person comes up out of the water, raised to walk in a new way of living. We're a different person. We're to walk differently. There's, there's a new disposition. When you've been saved, there's new life. There's a new outlook. There, you've been remade. Think back to my opening illustration, that plastic surgeon. But instead of being in the Chandler Mall, imagine you were the little boy in Vietnam who was born, born with a cleft, a split upper lip. His name was Thon. And because of his gross disfigurement of his mouth, everybody in his village called him suit split lip every day for Thon was a day of humiliation the first day he went to school he was teased so mercilessly that he refused to go back and he just assumed his entire life was ruined and then when he was nine years old an American doctor came with an organization that was founded by a plastic surgeon and they did surgery to correct that birth defect. Do you think his life changed? Well, here's what he said. I received a new smile, new friends, and reclaimed my birth name, which means blue sky. Now the sky's the limit for me. I have returned to school and to life. And the future is filled with sunshine. Now, what was the difference between Thon's response and how we would have responded if somebody had made a comment like that to us in the mall? He recognized his need, his shame, 
his helpless condition, his physical deformity. He needed a new life. Folks, we needed spiritual life. And when that comes, it ought to make a difference in how we live. You know, what does it say when Christians are constantly griping and complaining? That doesn't take spiritual life to do it. Our world is great at that. Just, just go to an airport and wait for a flight to be canceled. And watch what happens. I mean, our world does this all the time. It doesn't take life to do that. Our world is full of expressions of discontent. And if we do that, why would an unsaved person want what we have? They've already got it. You know, why would they want what we have if what they see is fear, anxiety, and discontent? See, we've been remade. We've been raised to walk with Christ together in a new way of living. And the third thing that we see is you, you're relocated. We're made to sit together with Christ. Not only do we, we participate in the resurrection life and, and share a new walk, we, we share in Christ's exaltation and victory. Christ's destiny is your destiny. We, ha we have a new address. Now, no longer are we standing at the base of that monument looking up. We're seated with Christ. We're looking down. We have that opportunity. Do we understand we have a new address? You know, we were, we were in South Carolina last week. We were staying at my, my sister-in-law's home, my brother-in-law. We were there, and, and we were there, but our address was here. We knew that was temporary. We're there for a bit, but, but that's not our home. We're living out of a suitcase. Folks, do we think that our spiritual home is in heaven? Or are, are we so busy unpacking and setting up house here that we forget this really isn't our final address? That, that we need to be walking differently. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So chapter 5 verse 8 says, walk as children of light. That we have a responsibility. We've been freed from the old life. The coercion of the prince of the power of the air. And now we're under the reign of Jesus Christ and his loving dominion. Our, our physical position may be here on earth, but our spiritual position is in the heavenlies. We're seated with Christ Jesus. We've been called out of the grave to sit with Christ to enjoy his fellowship. As we meditate upon that, that ought to encourage our heart to walk in the newness of life. So why is all this taking place? Well, the third thing that we see is the reason for God's glorious plan. And we find that in verse 7. That in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That God has a plan that's being revealed. You know, there, there's a vivid contrast between the opening verses of this chapter and what we find here. We've gone from being dead to being alive. Following the ways of the world and the prince of the power of the air to a relationship with Jesus Christ in heavenly realms. From being under God's wrath to being the recipients of his kindness, his mercy, his love, and his grace. From deserving doom to being saved. What a wonderful picture. We're recipients of the, the life-changing, life-giving grace of God, of the great physician. We are the after picture of God's mercy. And he's not done yet. He who's begun a good work in you will continue to perform it. Folks, that ought to encourage our hearts. 
See, as part of the body of Christ, your life is to reflect the masterwork of God's goodness. That's what we see in this passage. That throughout eternity, the church will display God's workmanship. That we will reflect that to a lost world. So set your mind on the things above. Remember, this isn't our home. We're not home yet. There's a contrast, and, and I think I've got a point under that for you, that, through, that as part of the body of Christ, your life will reflect His goodness. That's God, God's plan for your life. We've been called out of the grave to sit with Christ, to enjoy His fellowship. And as we understand that, we see how this is being applied. It's going to be expanded on what we find in chapter 2 and really verse, verse 10, that we are His workmanship, we are, that we're saved for good works, not by good works. We're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has planned. That's going to be expanded on when we get to chapter 3, verse 10. Because it's going to mention that not only is it for this world, it's for the world to come. It's a testimony of God's working. So how do we apply this personally? Number one, God's mercy, love, and grace can save you regardless of your sin. His mercy reaches to the depths. It's interesting, as you read the Gospels, there are three records of, of people that Jesus raised from the dead. There are three people that are recorded that he raised from the dead. The, the, in, in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, uh, there's a funeral procession that's coming out of the city and they're taking the, the, the man to be buried and the widow who's lost her only son is, is there and, and Jesus stops the procession. He offers comfort to the widow and then he raises that son back to life. In Luke chapter 8, verses 49 through 56, Jarius, who is a, a ruler of the, the synagogue, comes to Jesus because his, his 12-year-old daughter is ill. And, and so Jesus is going with Jarius to go to the house, and before they get there, somebody comes from the house and says, it's too late. She's already died. Don't bother the master anymore. There's nothing that can be done. She died. And Jesus goes anyway. And he goes to the house and he raises her from the dead. And the third individual most of us are familiar with is found in John chapter 11, verses 41 through 46, is Lazarus. Lazarus was sick, and his sister sent word to Jesus that, you know, your friend Lazarus is ill, you need to come now. And Jesus delays. He doesn't go. In fact, by the time Jesus shows up, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And, and he tells the sisters that your, your brother will live again. They say, well, we believe that. We believe in the resurrection. We know that that'll come. But if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And so Jesus goes to the tomb. And, and he tells them to take away the stone. And do you remember what Martha said? Lord, by this time, there is a stench. Or in the King James, he stinketh. I mean, that's pretty blunt. He said, it's been four days they didn't have the embalming. They said, the decay is already set in. Lord, don't do that. Now, in these three situations, they were in various stages of decay. That, that little 12-year-old girl had just died. It looked like she was sleeping. The young man was being taken out to be buried. And Lazarus had already begun to decay. 
and every one of them came back to life. That's a picture of what God does. And it happens through His Word. Life came by the Word. In Luke 7, 14, Young man, I say to you, arise. Luke 8, 54, Little girl, arise. John eleven forty three. 43, Lazarus, come forth. It's the Word of God that gives life. The same thing is true today regardless of the stench of your sin. Because it says in John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. He who hears my word and believes has life. Folks, that means nobody is hopeless. If they are still alive physically, there is hope for salvation. Sometimes we want to give up. Say, yeah, I'm not giving them my cart. No, let God do the work. He, he saves the hopeless. That was Paul. The chiefest of sinners, less than the least of all saints. The second thing we see, though, is spiritual life necessitates the removal of those grave clothes from your sinful life. Think back to Lazarus. He comes out of the tomb and he's wrapped head to foot in grave clothes. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, loose him and let him go. See, being remade means get rid of the garments of the old life. In fact, chapter 4 of Ephesians is going to expand on that in verses 22 through 24. Put off concerning the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. There's a change of life. But what do you think would have gone through those people's minds if as Lazarus comes out and they come up to start unwrapping him, he says, no, I want these clothes. What do you think they would have thought? Okay, his body's alive, but he's still brain dead. Something hasn't, it hadn't worked all, all the way up yet. Say, why would you want the clothes of the stench of death? Folks, if you've been risen with Christ... Why are you trying to hang on to your stinking grave clothes of sin? And if somebody keeps running back to the grave and embracing and clutching those clothes of death, what does that indicate about their spiritual life? We all struggle, but if that's where we want to be, maybe we've never experienced real life. Because the fruit of regeneration is a love for Jesus Christ. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And so it's important that we understand this, this, is, this is a serious aspect. It's not just, okay, I'm saved, I've been rescued. No, I'm transformed, I'm being remade. And, and I need to understand that because if, if you don't cherish, cherish the Lord, if you don't love Jesus, you probably aren't saved. Because it, it tells us in James 1 verse 12 that the crown of life that is mentioned there is for those who love Christ. That there's a love of His appearing. There's a love for Him. Now, again, we struggle. We still have those, the, the taint of sin. We're, we're not complete. We're in that process. But, but folks, there ought to be a battle. If what really excites us is the world, then something's wrong. And we need to examine ourselves. Are you in the faith? And understanding this, because the third thing that we see here is that your life is to reflect the transforming goodness of God. 
We were dead, but God made us alive. We were defiant. We were defiled. We were disobedient, but God raised us up with Christ and gave us a new disposition to walk in a new way of living. We yielded to the pressures of this world, the ruler of this world. We were doomed, but God deluged his goodness, his rich grace and mercy upon us and and let us sit with Christ in heavenly places that we can fellowship with him. So do you fellowship with him? Through his word, that time of prayer with his family, Folks, we we encourage one another to love and to good works. Do we have that fellowship that that truly reflects his rich grace and mercy? We really are the after picture of God's amazing work. Not not long ago, on, on social media, I saw an ad for a photo editing program. And as I looked at this, they had the before and after pictures. And as I looked at it, I couldn't tell a difference. And the more I looked at it, I wasn't convinced but what the before picture actually looked better. And the more more I thought about it, I thought, okay, I can't be the only one struggling with this. So I clicked on the comments. And I was not disappointed. (laughs) I was in good company. There were a whole bunch of people that were seeing the same thing I was. your, Your before and after pictures don't look any different. But one of the comments that stood out to me was someone said, I use this program. It is an excellent program, but this is a horrible ad. I don't know why the company is using this ad. And I thought, here's somebody who uses it and says, it can really help, but this is really not the way to show it. Folks, what kind of advertisement are we? We are the after picture. But if we have the before and after, is there that change? No, we're not what we should be. But is there a change, a change of attitude, a change of heart, a change of focus, a change of desire? Are we an advertisement showing God's rich grace and amazing transforming workmanship? We are His workmanship. And the purpose is that in ages to come, He can show the riches of His grace by what He's done with us. Hopeless, hell-bound sinners saved by grace. If you know Christ, walk in that new life. Recognize you're seated in the heavenlies. And if you don't know Christ, today is the day of salvation. It's the accepted time. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he will judge those who choose sin over the Savior. God's great love and mercy not only gives us new life, it gives us that fellowship. Oh, I hope that it encourages our hearts today. To God be the glory, the great things he has done. Let's pray together.